Good morning again. It's a good day. Thank you, band. Uh, I had a friend in a long time ago. When she was five and a half, her family went to the Grand Canyon. Now, this was many, many, many years ago. And so uh, they went to a rather untouristy part of the Grand Canyon, and they had their five-and-a-half-year-old dad's hand, and the two-year-old toddler was up in mom's arms, and they were seeing just the beautiful, beautiful scenery of the Grand Canyon, plenty, plenty far from the cliff. And so um, there wasn't many other people around, and they were walking along, and and the spitfire five-and-a-half-year-old's like, Dad, want to run? And she's like, or he said, "Uh, no. Uh, And he said, stay on the path. And she's like, well, I do. And so she started running. And there's this little moment of panic in the parents' minds, but they are plenty, plenty far from the edge. And so she starts running. And as she um, runs, I can't remember exactly if she tripped or she turned or she went right off the edge of the path, but she hit something that caused her to fall. And so now, even though she's very, very far from the edge, she is sliding and rolling towards the edge. And obviously, mom and dad panic, and they start running. And mom has the two-year-old in tow, and dad is racing towards the edge as she's screaming and rolling and sliding. And the only thing between her and the edge is a four-foot orange snow fence. Come on, you've seen these before. The plastic things with the little holes that like, are held up by two rods, and you're like, there's no way. I mean, 42 pounds of like, inertia is going towards this thing. And she hits it and slides under. And at that moment, that the, just the force of hitting it was enough to slow her that she only went five feet past the edge. Thank goodness someone thought about having a little margin at the edge of the cliff and put it 15 feet from the edge as dad grabbed his daughter 10 feet from the edge of the Grand Canyon. And my friend gets to tell me the story when we grow up. Um, there, There is this aspect of living inside the margins that that we haven't discussed yet. We've talked about this idea of Sabbath and and really having true rest with God. We've talked about this idea of of margins so that we can remember how God has worked in our lives. We've talked about the idea of living financially with some margin in our lives. And now today, um, I really, really believe we need to talk about this thing that I'll just call moral margin. And before you start thinking like, oh, Rob's going to talk about turtlenecks and nuns and chaperone dates, um, I really think that it's more about what is the distance between us and the cliff? I mean, if if our working definition of margin has been um, the difference between what we have, what we need, and what's available, then then maybe moral margin's definition is the distance between us and temptation. What's the difference between us and the edge of the cliff? And, and if you're thinking, you know what? I have morals. I'm a good person. Like, that song doesn't apply to me. Or I'd never go that far. Um, those things would never happen to me. Listen to some stories of real people who never thought it would happen to them. 
I didn't mean for it to happen. In fact, I didn't really see what had happened until I was at the bottom. My life had little margin, working hard to climb the corporate ladder. So it started as a little mildly inappropriate TV to relax. Surely not a pornography addiction. I wasn't watching anything bad, so to speak, but it is amazing how far little things like sexually explicit TV shows and advertisements can take you. Nothing immoral was happening at this point, but a small seed had been planted in my unguarded mind. I deserved to be happy. I deserved to be content. I deserved to be satisfied. I still found my wife attractive and found myself being aroused by being around her, but she was busy with things around the house, kids, and life in general. I did not want to put her out, but I thought that I deserved to be satisfied, so I decided to satisfy myself. Once wouldn't hurt anything, and besides, I was still thinking about my wife, so no one was getting hurt, right? Surely this was not an addiction. Once became twice. Twice became three times, and soon a pattern began. Even though my wife and I were routinely together, it wasn't enough. I wanted more, and self-gratification was an easy way to get it. I started to forget my marriage vow that said forsaking all others and started looking at other women to satisfy my needs. In my mind, I wasn't having an affair because I wasn't physically touching anyone besides my wife. Soon other images were moving into my head when I would gratify myself. The woman from that TV commercial, the lingerie ad from the Sunday newspaper, the magazines and advertisements that came in the mail. The images were all there for my cravings and my pleasure. But after a while, the images that I had were not enough to stimulate the response that I wanted. I needed and wanted more. I started looking at images on the computer. I was still in denial that this was hurting anyone. I thought I had everything under control, but I had to make sure that I was careful to cover my tracks and hide what I was looking at and what I was doing. That should have been a major clue that something was definitely wrong, but I kept walking to the edge of the cliff. Finding new and more provocative images began to consume every available free minute. I was losing touch with my family, my friends, my, my God. I was making a choice, but I couldn't see that I was completely addicted and in complete bondage to my sinful pleasures. I kept wanting more. How had I gone from loving Jesus and loving my family to being a pervert in a painful slide off the moral cliff? I never thought the slow fade would happen to me, especially not in eighth grade. I guess it started when I met a cute ninth grade boy that year in my church youth group. He was tall, popular, and muscular. He showed an interest in me, and since my self-esteem wasn't so great in junior high, I figured I must be good if I was good enough for him. He became my everything, and I spent every minute that my parents allowed me to spend with him. I was totally in love. We talked about getting married, and I even had a date picked out. You might laugh, but in my eighth grade mind, I really believed that. I eventually gave all of myself to him, emotionally and physically. Just over a year later, we did not get married. Even after I had given him my heart and my body, he just moved on to someone else. I felt used, discarded, and worthless. This crushed me and my self-worth. I thought if I wasn't good enough for him, who else would want me? I just slowly faded further. What I mean by that is I would start dating a boy and usually alcohol would be involved. And he sure acted like he liked me. And so I would give him my body to get love and value. As this continued through high school, I used drinking to forget this reality. 
I never thought this would be my life. Then, what I really never thought would happen to me happened. I wound up pregnant. I had an abortion. That did not solve my problem. In fact, it made it worse. A year later, I found out I had a sexually transmitted disease that would likely cause me to never be able to have children. I woke up many mornings in a cloudy daze, wondering how I got here. I never thought this would happen to me. Eight, <clears throat> eight years ago, I cheated on my wife. I didn't wake up one day and decide to have an affair. It just happened. At the time, we had been married for seven years and had three little kids, all under the age six. I was working hard to make a successful career for myself with my wife at home, looking after the kids. At seven years, you kind of settle into day-to-day -day life, and things aren't as exciting as they were when you first fell in love. My wife stopped wearing makeup, and some days she didn't even have time to shower. Taking care of the kids was a full-time job, and she didn't have time for herself anymore. We gave up working out together, which was something we used to love doing. If she got a walk-in during the day with the kids, it was good enough for her. I started going to the health club near my office before work. One day while working out, I noticed a new hires from the company, Julie. We engaged in small talk about exercising and went our separate ways. Shortly thereafter, I was assigned to be Julie's mentor at work. I was to take her on sales calls with me, invite her to business lunches, show her the ropes, so to speak. She was young and full of zest. Ambition was that a breath of fresh air. I had to, and I had to admit, I liked the way she dressed, wore makeup, showered every day. She was like my wife seven years ago, before kids. At some point, I guess my relationship with Julie changed from mentor to friend. She was someone I routinely talked to and complained to. I took her, I told her that my marriage wasn't exciting anymore and that the daily aspects of life were dragging my marriage down. She seemed to always understand. I started looking forward to my morning health club visits more and more because I knew Julie would be there. I didn't really think I was doing anything wrong or putting my marriage in jeopardy. We were just friends who liked to work out together. As the months went on, the health club became the highlight of my day. Sometimes Julie and I would go for runs outside the club. We talked about training for a marathon together. Sometimes we got a little flirty with each other, but I still didn't think I was doing anything terribly wrong. One night, I decided to give my wife a break from the kids, so I took them Christmas shopping. With the kids in tow, we stopped at the mall, and I brought, bought my wife a $250 gift card, which I thought was a pretty nice gift. Then I took the kids to the running store because I wanted to get something special for Julie. I bought her a $25 Nike running hat in her favorite color, pink. Something inside me wondered, is this okay to buy a gift for a female friend? I was starting to question the appropriateness of our relationship, but it's easy to rationalize when you don't want to face the truth about what you are doing. So I told myself it was okay. 
After all, my wife's gift cost ten times more than Julie's gift. After I gave Julie the hat, our relationship became closer and we started sending risque emails to each other. We were pushing the envelope, but for some reason I didn't stop myself. I slid further and further until I had two separate lives going on. And as long as I kept them separate, I figured I wasn't really hurting anyone. Julie and I started meeting at a different health club 30 miles away from the office because we didn't want to run into coworkers and have them find out what was going on. I started working late and going into work extra early. In the evenings, I would tell my wife I needed to make a business call, and instead I would call Julie. My wife was suspicious and confronted me several times. I flat out lied. I told her she was crazy and just imagining things. At some point, I had already crossed the point of no return, and all I could do now was hope I didn't get caught, which I did. One morning, I got up at 4 a.m. to see if Julie had emailed me. She had wanted to get together before work. I rushed out of the door, and my hurry left the email open. While I was with Julie that morning, my wife read the email, and her entire world collapsed around her. Literally collapsed. She was incapacitated from the betrayal. Sick, throwing up, she couldn't take care of the kids. She told me not to come home. We spent the next six months mostly in silence. My wife stopped showering altogether. In fact, she barely got out of bed. Occasionally, she got up to smash a family photo or dig through our old credit card and cell phone records to investigate what she already knew. When she had found the charge from the running store, it was like she had found the email all over again. She cried herself to sleep that night withering in pain through the thoughtfulness I put into the $25 gift. We eventually got into counseling and are still working on our marriage. We both had to make a lot of changes, and even many years later, I know that my wife is still doesn't trust me completely. What happened? I never wanted to be that guy. I never wanted to have an affair. I think back often and try to figure out when I cross the line, but the line isn't always clearly defined. Like I said, I didn't wake up one day and decide to cheat on my wife. I just kept walking to the edge of that cliff until I could do was slide down, a slide that changed our lives forever. In high school, it's really hard to fit in. Teenagers can be clicky and even straight out mean. Going to high school, all I wanted was to fit in with the popular group and be liked by everyone. Maybe that's what everyone wants. But by my sophomore year, my popular friends began to change and move into a lifestyle full of partying and drinking. Some of us, including me, didn't drink because we believed it was illegal, sinful, and against our values. I slowly separated myself from this partying group, knowing that it was not something I wanted to be a part of. I was still occasionally invited to a party, and I was thankful it was never awkward at school or anything, but my close friend group definitely changed. The summer before senior year, there was a typical huge end-of-summer party. The girl having the party invited 80 more, more than 80 people, including me. I really wanted to go, and even though I knew some people would be making bad decisions, 
My plan was not to, and I knew I wouldn't be the only one not participating. So I asked my mom. She hesitated and thought about it for a while. Then she, began, then she asked the big question, is there going to be drinking going on? I knew she knew there was going to be drinking based on the group of people that were invited. So I told her the truth and said that kids would most likely be drinking, but of course I wouldn't. She believed me, told me she had a bad feeling about it all, but since she trusts me, she said it was my decision. I sat in my room and thought about it for a while. I asked myself some big questions. Why did I really want to go? Was it to be liked or accepted? Was it so people would think I was cool? And did I really want to put myself in that situation? Did I really want to be associated with that group of people? I decided not to go. My parents and I went to see a movie instead. After the movie, I checked my phone and saw a text message from a friend saying, party was busted, bunch of people got minors. Many of my classmates got minors at that party. My classmates and even some friends were benched from sports, stripped of being captain, and had to face their parents and peers. I guess you'd say I had some moral margin. It was nice to know that even though I knew I wouldn't drink, I felt I'd made the wise decision to not go to the party. Maybe you think some of those examples are extreme, but honestly, how many of you know someone who's been affected by sexual sin? I mean, you have a friend who's made a mistake. You've had a friend who's wrecked their life. You've had a friend who said, I never thought it would happen to them. I don't think any of us intend to go towards the cliff. Um, I don't think any of our friends, any of the people we know, ever intended to go towards the cliff, but the, the scenery was just so good that we go further and further and further, and then all of a sudden, something happens. And you think about some of those extremes, and then just put them on a goal sheet. Not, not to mock it or make fun of it, but does someone say, hey, by 10 years, I want to have an affair um, by my 10-year anniversary, or I want to be addicted to pornography so that images on the screen consume my mind and, and totally can't make me focus. Or, or you know what, maybe, maybe if I play one of these cards right, like, not only will I you know, sleep with a lot of people, but I'll end up with the disease that I can give somebody else, or, or I'll, I'll, I'll lose the respect of my kids and, and lose my marriage. I don't think anyone wants to do that. But somehow it just happens. And, and the Bible doesn't just say it happens. Actually, James 1 says that um, when temptation comes from our desires, which entice us and drag us away, and these desires give birth to death, or these desires give birth to sinful actions, and sin, when it is allowed to grow, give birth to death. Now, as you look at those verses from James, uh, I have one more story. It actually comes from the Bible, but it's like an illustration of, of this verse. So we'll leave that up and and listen to how one person, much wiser than me, wrote it. And he said this, As I stood at the window of my house, and I looked out the shutters, there was a crowd strolling by in a daze, and, and I saw a young man without any sense. He was walking the streets, and he came to a corner where she lived. Then turning up the road by her house, it was dusk, and the evening was coming on, and darkness was coming into the night. And just then, the woman met him. She'd been waiting for him, dressed to seduce him. She was striking and bold, aggressive and relentless, roaming around, never content to be at home. 
She walked the streets. She hung out at the mall. She knew the places to meet men in town. She threw her arms around him and she kissed him, boldly took his arm and said, I've been waiting for you. I have the makings of a feast. I've made my offerings. My vows are paid. Now I've come to find you. And now I have. I've spread fresh, clean sheets on my bed and imported colorful linens. My bed is an aroma of spices and fragrances. Come, let's make love all night. Let's spend the night in ecstasy. My husband's not home. He's away on business. He won't even be home until next week. Soon she has him eating out of her hand, bewitched by her honeyed speech. Before you know it, he's trotting behind her like a calf led to the butcher shop, like a fly caught in a web, not realizing that not only his flying days are over, but also his life. That kind of sounds like an Edgar Allan Poe poem, doesn't it? Um, but it's actually from Proverbs chapter 7. And it's not about women or men or who's the seducer or seducee. It is about what happens in these verses from James, that, that evil desires entice us and they lead to sin and sinful actions when grown lead to death. And there's a, this story unbelievably illustrates this sequence of steps. And then at the conclusion, if you have a Bible, you might want to turn to it because I think there's some really cool things here that I want to camp out on in Proverbs 7. The ending or the conclusion is like a wise father to a son or a wise father to a daughter who says, now, here's the point of the story. So listen, my sons, and pay attention to my words. Don't let your heart stray towards her. Don't wander down her wayward path. For she has been the ruin of many, for many men have been her victims. Her house is the road to the grave. Her bedroom is the den of death. So in this vivid conclusion, I think the writer gives us like four orange snow fences or three orange snow fences that are four feet high. Not to put up like right at the edge of the Grand Canyon, not even to put up 15 feet, but to put several up. These three guards come right out of the text to put space between us and temptation. And so I just want to quickly go through them. The first one is to guard our mental space. Literally, you might say like an eyes snow fence or an eye guard. It says, don't let your heart stray towards her in verse 25 at the beginning. And so for the ancient culture, what they meant was don't let your heart stray towards her. Your heart was the control center of everything. It was your mind. It was your emotions. It was kind of everything you thought, felt, and moved in and, and, and included your spirit. So this idea that we would not let our heart stray towards someone else or towards sin was really about this, this space up here. What do we fantasize about? What do we think about? Where does our mind dwell? How much time do we spend focusing on those things? And you might say, well, is fantasy bad? Um, we just heard a couple stories about where fantasy, where that mental picture went for us first. The mental picture took these people down a road whether it was with someone or whether it was with images. And, and then the danger happened when, when, when people, when we start to think, what if? It's just a simple question, but it's such a dangerous, dangerous question. What if my wife showered every day? What if my husband actually came home on time? 
What if that girl from psychology class actually walked up to me? What if? What if? And then we start to play that picture back. And the fun part is we get to be in charge of that picture. And we get to, we get to think about where that picture is going to go. And Jesus says it just so, so clearly in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28. He says, you've heard the commandment, you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery. And you think about that, and who hasn't looked a little too long? I mean, it's one thing to go, whew, God did a great job. And it's another thing to go, whoa. Pretty much the same thing, whether you're a man or a woman, but there's a difference in how long we look and where our mind goes. So why would Jesus say that if everyone is going to fall into this category? Um, yes, he's speaking in extremes or hyperbole. Yes, he's trying to act like, like the new Moses. And so how Moses went up on the mountain and gave the Ten Commandments, Jesus in the same way was trying to come up and give this new law, this law that people would say like, whoa, that's even higher than Moses' law. Why is he doing that? Yes, he's trying to do all those things. But I think one of the major reasons he's saying that particular verse really gets cleared up one chapter later. In chapter 6, verse 22, he says, Your eye is the lamp that provides light to your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if you think that what is in you is light when it's actually darkness, then how deep is that darkness? As you focus on something, your eyes give light to that. They illuminate that. So you might say, well, well, is moral margin really just about like what we wear or what we look at? And say, well, no. And yes. Yes, because sometimes, and I'm not saying don't be out in fashion or out of fashion. Um, it's not about turtlenecks, but sometimes we put things on and really we're trying to say something with it. We're trying to get a response. And what is that response? What do we want people's eyes to then go to their brain and then think about? Where do we want them to focus? So it does matter what we wear for men and for women. Both are very visual these days because what people see usually is where their mind goes. At some point, it goes a little past just noticing. So that's the first snow fence. Sometimes it's very easy to break through that first fence, which is why I think the writer gives a second fence. In verse 25b, the second half of that verse, he says, not only do not let your heart go towards her, he says, don't wander down her wayward path. This is about guarding our physical space. This is about our bodies and about our location. So first, our bodies. Maybe you saw the movie No Strings Attached. I'm not necessarily recommending it. It's about two young professionals who don't have time for authentic relationships, so they decide to make a deal with each other, and they'll just have sex together. And no strings attached. There doesn't have to be like anything more. They really believe that their bodies are separate from their soul, and so there won't be any physical attachment here. Um, and so, so the IMBD, like movie review says, um, the plot summary, the characters figure out 
in that movie that they cannot just be physically together and remain detached. They fall for each other. Their emotions get in the way. And it really comes through in the same way in 1 Corinthians 6. The writer here is speaking kind of against the Greek philosophy of the day, which would say the same thing, that our, that our bodies are separate from our soul. And so the writer says this in verse 12. He says, you say I'm allowed to do anything, because that's one thing the Greeks would say. But, but he says, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say food was made for the stomach and stomach for the food, and that's true, although God will someday, someday destroy both the body and the food. But you can't say our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for God, and the Lord cares about our bodies, and he will raise us from the dead by his power, and just as he raised Jesus from the dead. Don't you realize that our bodies are actually part of Christ? So should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures even say, the two are united into one. But the person who has joined with the Lord is one in spirit with the Lord. So again, Paul was arguing against these Greek philosophies. Stay with me, Greek philosophies. I know it's fun. Um, that our minds and our bodies were, were separate. And, and Paul says, well, since Jesus was raised up, not just in spirit, but in body too, they must be connected. And so your philosophy is a little wrong. And, and it's not too dissimilar. I know that's a double negative, but it's pretty similar to what we experience today. Maybe you've heard it from friends. You know what? If it feels good, do it. You know what? That's just your point of view. I see it this way. It's okay. Or, hey, we're both adults. We're not hurting anyone else. Or, we're just having sex. It's fun. It's recreation. No strings attached. We can keep the two separate. And what Paul is saying is that they're connected and, and you can't. You can't keep them disconnected. And, and I would just add, it doesn't just affect our bodies, it also affects our minds, it also affects other people. And that's why it's so powerful. And so one way I would talk about this when I did youth ministry is I would have the little, the little, the large boys and girls, they, the men would have to, the boys would have to make an egg and... Uh, they would have to color him, and put a little hair and some muscles on him, you know, like that. And then, for time, I'm not going to do the other one. Then the girl would get all dressed up, and she'd have hair and body, and, you know, they'd usually put a little dress on her and be like, okay, and then the boy meets the girl, and they go out on a date, and they watch a movie, and they hold hands. And then holding hands leads to kissing, and kissing leads to touching, and Pretty soon they're going from 90 degrees to 80 degrees to 75 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10. They're laying down on each other and they're getting kind of messy. Whew. Sorry, setup team. And they have sex. But like most people who date in high school and college, you don't end up with the person you start dating. And so they break up, pun intended. And now, they have to go their separate ways. But as you look 
at the yokes, how separate can you make them? Because their minds and their spirits have, have joined together and their bodies have joined together. And so it's not that easy to pull apart. Are you getting me a napkin, Michael? Because that would be great. I didn't think that through. Um, oh, wait, look at that. I did. I have one. Ha, ha, ha. Yay. Even when I don't think I plan ahead, I do. Um, so you can't just, you can't just tell me that, that it's, just, it's just two bodies because I don't think that, that Scripture says that. So how do you avoid that? Well, the Scripture follows that up in verse in chapter 6, verses 18 and 20, it says, Run, flee from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body, and someone else usually. And don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you, who is given to you by God? So you don't belong to yourself. God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. You know, I'm amazed when I go back and I think about the times that I was really tempted in this area of my life and now finally being able to admit it wasn't really about how strong or how weak my faith was. You know, when I'd, I'd be dating someone and I'd be like, Mom and Dad, can I bring her home? And they'd be like, no, you can't because we're not going to be here. And I'm like, what, don't you trust me? Which is a total lie, but what, don't you trust me? And they're like, yeah, we trust you. We don't trust you together. Oh. And we put ourselves sometimes in situations, whether it's deciding to train for a marathon together, that aren't bad, but are leaning down the road. And so not only do we have to guard our eyes, put that eye snow fence up, of do not let our heart wander or our mind wander, we also have to put up this second snow fence of where our body is, what our body's doing, what our body is sensing. So, so when I... When I think about this and, and I think about the people that have been affected, it's like we really, in no other way do we, do we approach sin in this way, I think except in this area of morality where we just want to go like right up to the edge and like lean in because the, the view is so good. And we don't realize that, you know, standing 50 feet back from the Grand Canyon, we'd get a really good view. But we want to like go right up to the edge and lean in because we might get a little bit better view. And so... I remember asking a mentor in college, um, I really like this girl, and I really want to honor Jesus. And I really think, actually, I know I've said this 10 other times to you, but I really think I might marry her. This one. So how far can I go? Like, what would be appropriate? And my friend just looks at me and he said, Rob, it's not really how far you can go, it's really how pure you can remain. Because everything you do before you get married, you're going to have to undo after you get married. And people who've been divorced know this. And people who've engaged in sexual activity before marriage know this. This isn't about judgment. This isn't about pointing fingers. This is just the reality that you have to undo some things. And this isn't really even about being married or being single. Because the, the New Testament writer here, Paul, he like brings it all the way back to the Genesis story. And he says, the two are united into one and it's one flesh. And in Ephesians 5, he says, the two joined to one. And he's like, I'm not even talking about marriage. I'm talking about Jesus and the church. 
When he says, don't you realize what your body, when you, when you are united with Jesus, you are united with his, his spirit and his body. So this isn't about you and someone else, a man or a woman. He said, this is about, this is about me, Jesus. This is about being centered in Christ. This is about seeing the value of somebody else. Verse 19 or 20, it says, this is about honoring God. And so when he says, run from sexual immorality, he comes back and he said, God bought you and I with a high price. So honor God with your body. Honor God with your body is not the end-all command of do's and don'ts, of thinking that, that God is putting a four-foot snow fence around us that we can't have any fun This is that God bought us with a high price. He bought us with a high price. That price was betrayal and beating and crucifying Jesus. And no matter where you've been or what you've done or or how you feel about when you got here today, even if you would have been the only person on earth, no matter what you've done, Jesus would have died for you on that cross. He would have died for me. So if you're like, I have so much baggage, God could never love me. Absolutely, Jesus would love you. Think about the people that he hung out with. People that were impure and people that were imperfect. He loved them. Not because they were a project. He just loved them. Probably because they were honest about who they were. And he didn't leave us stranded or helpless. He came, he accepted us, he laughed with us, he hung out with those that were destitute and those that were sexually immoral. And, and just like the Ten Commandments aren't really a list of right and wrongs, but really like this is how to have healthy relationships with others and ultimately with God. In the same way, like when we confess sin, when we say this is where I've been, this is where I'm at, publicly, privately, however you want to do that, Jesus clears it all out. And and sometimes we have to live through some of the consequences of that, but he clears it out. He washes us away. So if you're in a mess, you've been devalued, or you've been broken, or you've been betrayed, like Jesus says, I forgive you. When we ask for his forgiveness, he changes us from the inside out. He connects us back with the creator of the universe. He assures us that we belong to him. And when you think about these first two guards, guards of your eyes and of your body, they're really about being connected because isn't that what we want? This isn't like some little tiny pitch for like being a life group. This is when you think about your security. A lot of us just want to know that no matter what we do, someone's going to love us. And God is that person ultimately and forever. So whether you're married or you're single, it will not come from either current or future Mr. or Mrs. It ultimately has to come from our creator that we are connected to him and always, 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 always connected to him. It's only when we think we're removing ourselves that he's, he's right there pursuing us. And so we can we can say, oh, I'm unconditionally accepted by Jesus. And if you've never said that before, say it today. I am unconditionally accepted by the creator of the universe. So I don't need to pursue fake or false intimacy because I have intimacy with God. 
And if those things don't stop us enough, the third, the third guard, the snow fence, is guarding our future. Those last two verses say, She has been the ruin of many. Many men have been her victims. Her house is the road to the grave. Her bedroom is the den of death. And what that means is it's a really ancient, vivid way of just saying, like, the end result is not so good. It, it, when you look at the cliff and you just logically step back and think, and sometimes we're just too close to the situation, so it really does matter that somebody else comes up next to us and says, you know, like, you've met the same person for coffee, for counseling, 18 times in a row. Does your wife know about that? We're not doing anything wrong. We have to guard our future. Well, think about where that's going to go. It's, it's, really, it's really about wisdom and foolishness. If I go down this path, if I go to this party, what might happen? If I hang out with this friend, where is that going to go? You know, I remember when my dad showed me a mousetrap for the first time. I was like, well, I was probably like nine or ten, but I, I wish I was younger than that because the story's not so great. He like pulls out the old school metal mousetrap, you know, that you have the hinge back and stuff, and you put the little cheese on the thing, and he's like, okay, this is what happens, and it's super, like, he's like, you press that, and then whoosh, this comes down, and he didn't actually snap it and do it and then get his hand out. He just showed me what would happen, and he's like, do you want to see it? And I'm like, yeah, I do. And he's like, so this will snap down, and it'll, sorry, guys, it'll break the mouse's neck. And I'm like, can I try it? He's like, you're not going to be able to get your hand out in time. And I'm like, but can I? So I put my hand on the thing and I hit it and I had a purple knuckle for two weeks. It was not good. It was not at all good. But some other smart person said, animals who don't see the connection between traps and death are stupid. They lack wisdom. Just like people who don't see the connection between their sin and death aren't wise. I had a two-week reminder of what the trap did. I've never done it again. I'm thinking about telling my kids about it because they're about old enough, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to. But James 1, temptation entices us and that, entices, that thing that entices us drags us away and the desires give birth to death and sinful actions and sinful actions are allowed to grow. They give birth to death. So what's the wise thing to do? Not what's the right thing, not what's the best thing what's the wise thing to do? No matter where you've been, I haven't been perfect. I'm not a perfect guy. I, I just really think about in light of my present situation, in light of my past experiences, and in light of my future hopes and dreams. What's the wise thing to do? Ooh, that's good. You should write that down. In light of my <laughs> past experiences. Like, do I come from a family of alcoholics? Because if I do, then maybe I shouldn't do that. Do I come from a family who has a really, really hard time with controlling their weight or gluttony? Then I shouldn't hang out at the Byerly's Bakery. In light of my past experiences, in light of my present situation, who's going to be there? What's the chances? What are the feelings? And in light of my future hopes and dreams, do I want to stay married? Do I want to find the person? Do I want to undo all of this work or maybe just a little tiny bit? In light of my future hopes and dreams, what's the wise thing to do? As the worship team comes up and we 
we really praise God. And if you have to go, that's okay. But if, if, if we think about what's the wise thing to do, and we praise God because even in the midst of when we're not so wise, he still loves us. But this is about wisdom and foolishness. You know, 53%, these are statistics that everybody can skew, so don't take my word on them, but over 50% of marriages end in divorce. Over 40% have adultery happen in the first 10 years. What's the wise thing to do? What does it look like to safeguard stuff? So for me, I have somebody that asks me every week, did you honor God with your mind and your body and your eyes? Did you go anywhere you weren't supposed to go? Did you talk to anyone that you really shouldn't talk to? You know, I have a, a computer tech that, that can very easily find my internet history on my computer. So that's good motivation for me to not do anything. Do you have a problem in that area? Well, I don't want to. I don't want to. Um, what does that look like for you? What's the wise thing to do? Do I want my girls to know that their dad doesn't objectify women? Do I want my girls to know that they should be loved for who they are on the inside, not the outside? Do I want my son to know that I respect my wife as an equal partner who, who mutually seeks God with me, not someone who meets my needs? And that's just my story, but what's yours? So as you think and ponder like, God, what do I need to do with this? What, how far am I from the edge of the cliff? How many snow fences do I have up? How many of these guards do I put into my life? What's the wise thing for me to do? Because no matter where you've been, Jesus has pulled you out of something. He's pulled you out of some filth. He's pulled you out of some wrong. He's pulled you out of somewhere where you've been separated from him. Big or small, it doesn't matter. And he says, I love you. I redeem you. Walk with me. Goes back to the very first verse in our margin. My yoke is easy, my spirit is light. If you need somebody to pray with, we'll have somebody in the back to pray with you. Um, please rise as we close um, with this song.